you know, I've never ran a hundred million dollar business. These are not talents or, or, or like scar tissue that I have built up. Am I ready for the challenge? Certainly. Um, and, and am I willing to do the things I got to do to learn it? Certainly. But that's what I love about business is that it's almost like it causes you to go through this like repeat process of block and tackling. It's like the, the, the problems you're facing at that moment in the business journey, they are what causes you to go out and read the books to hit the hit the people up that may have done it and like try to learn from them to seek out uh, uh, conferences where where these types of people are giving talks and learn from them um, and so like constantly like this like auditing what stage of the journey you're at and like what is the thing you need at that moment going out and, and getting the books to uh, for that moment Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Carnivera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. We're back here for episode 122 with very special guest, Brian Clayton. Brian Clayton is the CEO and co-founder of an organization called GreenPal. It's an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. Brian's in the eighth year of his current business after growing a company called Peachtree, one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee to over $10 million, selling it in 2013. Retired and said, I'm bored, I gotta get back to work building something new. Brian is the consummate entrepreneur and he's gonna talk with us today about entrepreneurship, the different stages of a business from startup to grow up to scale up. He's gonna talk about the importance of shifting your leadership leveling up your leadership as you grow through the stages of a business. He's going to talk about the difference between a self-employed person, a business owner, an entrepreneur, and all things in between. It is a rich conversation for anyone looking to grow their business and grow their leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are excited to be back here today, Craig and I. We've got a very interesting guest. I know all our guests proved to be interesting, but already know <laughs> Brian Clayton is going to be interesting. He is the CEO and co-founder of an organization called GreenPal. It's an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. I love this, that GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Entrepreneur, uh, Entrepreneur Magazine, has over 200,000 active users. Mm thousands of transactions a day. Uh, Brian has founded another company before that called Peachtree, one of the largest landscaping companies in Tennessee, which he grew to over 10 million a year before selling that. We love, we love entrepreneurs who have had that exit opportunity, Brian. And Brian's here to talk about uh, entrepreneurism, small business growth. And I love this one, bootstrapping businesses from zero revenue to profitability and exit. And I know None of you want to do that, <laughs> yes, including Craig and I. So welcome, Brian. Yeah. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. So give us a little bit about the Brian Clayton story. Yeah. So 
Great intro. Thanks. Thanks for that awesome intro. I'm currently the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, which is the Uber for lawn mowing. Been at this business for eight years. We're an eight-year overnight success. <laughs> Several hundred thousand people using the app to get their grass cut, doing over $20 million a year in revenue. The first few years of starting this business were, were really, really tough because I kind of had to reinvent myself from a blue-collar entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur. Mm. My first business was a landscaping company. I started cutting grass in high school as a way to make extra cash. And actually it wasn't an option. My dad forced me to go mow the neighbor's yard one day. He said, Hey, you got a job to do. You're going to go cut the neighbor's yard. And luckily he did because that just stuck with me. Something about being in charge of my destiny and making as much <laughs> money as I wanted to make yeah. just, just resonated with me. And I stuck with that lawn mowing business for a 15 year period of time and built wow. it from just me and a push mower to me and ultimately 150 employees, over $10 million a year in revenue. And in 2013, the business was acquired by one of the largest landscaping companies in the country. Hmm. And after that, I retired. I took time off. I traveled. I got fat and I, bo and I got bored. And I thought, okay, it's time to get back in the game. Let's start a new company. Let's start a, let's start a technology business because that should be a little easier. Boy, I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know how hard it was going to be. Luckily, I was naive. And uh, I, my two co-founders and I have never looked back. And here we are eight years later with GreenPow and, and we're, we're got a good profitable business humming. That's awesome. What a great story. And I love that you, you actually said you had to shift your mindset from the, from the old style to the new style. And there is, there is a big difference in the way that you do things. And certainly the software business is very different than the more hands-on. Absolutely. You know, my first company, I mean, it was about mm. as blue collar as it gets. I had, uh, I had three mechanics that worked for me, wrench turners. All they wow. did was, was, uh, fix trucks and fix lawnmowers. And, and, I uh, had, you know, trucks, 90 trucks going out every day and, and, wow. and a lot of laborers for employees. And so, yeah, running that type of business and that type of sales organization also yeah. is a lot different than inventing a brand new mobile app <laughs> yeah. and inventing a brand new tech startup. And I didn't understand the gap between those two styles of businesses until I got in the trenches of starting GreenPow and, and uh, was confronted with the reality that like, wow, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. What was but the biggest surprise for you? A couple things. Um, when you're when you're starting a traditional style business, it could be anything, you know, construction company, roofing company, landscaping contractor. Maybe you want to open up a bakery. You know, there's kind of a known uh, path. Mm. There's yeah. kind of a known journey. You can look at other successful business owners, maybe in your market, maybe in other cities, and almost like copy what they're doing, but just like do it better. And, and it's not that it makes it easier. It's actually hard to get any business going, but at least it kind of helps you along in terms of I, I've seen what they've done and I can kind of do it better. And, and, and that kind of helps you along the way. When you're starting a technology company, in most cases, you're inventing a brand new product that does not yet exist. And yeah. that's a lot harder. It's like 10 <laughs> times harder because there's no roadmap. There's no like thing you can copy. You have to like figure it out as you go and you have to just go from like one failure to the next without a loss of enthusiasm. And you got to be willing to do that for a long enough period of time until you find what they call product market fit, which is like, mm -hmm. I have the right product that's solving the right problem. People will use it and keep using it and, and enough to where I can make a little money to grow the thing. 
And it's, it's, uh, it's really hard to do that in the early days. And, and on top of all that, I had to, I had to teach myself how to write software. I had to teach myself how to market software. I had to teach myself how to, um, how to build a marketplace that connects buyers and sellers. So these were all things I didn't know. I didn't even know I didn't know. Them. <laughs> and, uh, and so you just kind of get in there and you just, you just, you just focus on what is it that I need to do right now to get to the next step of the game. And, and my two co-founders and I did that for four or five years, actually, before we got any real traction. And uh, luckily, we just stuck with it because here we are now. We're we're uh, we're seeing some good compound interest, some good momentum. There's there's like three phases to every company. There's like the startup phase, and the grow up phase, and the scale up phase. And we're just now like finishing the grow up phase, and we're okay. setting off, getting ready to scale. Wow. So Brian, the question comes to mind is you you accurately described or very vividly described the difference between those two businesses, but I'm going to guess that you had to show up differently in the new business. Hmm. You had to That's lead right. differently. You had to manage differently, not just do, but you had to be differently. So what were some of those fundamental shifts you had to make as a leader and owner when this different kind of business? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing about business is that it will cause you to be a better, different, um, humble, more humble, wiser person and a better <laughs> leader. And if you're going to yeah. make it in business, you got to become a decent leader. I almost look at it like uh, back in the day, one of my favorite video games was Super Mario Kart. And you had like, <laughs> Very fun. Yeah, you had like six drivers in that game, right? And, and all of them were kind of good at, really good at one thing. It was like one, like Bowser was like the fastest and, and, and like hard to like beat off the line. And, and like uh, um, Princess had, was really good at accelerating and Toad was good at handling. And then you had Mario, who was kind of like half-ass good at everything. And, and in like, he wasn't like the best driver ultimately, but like, if you're just starting out, it was a good one to pick. And I think in business, the first year or two, you kind of have to be Mario. You got to be good at, at innovation. You got to be good at marketing. You got to be good at sales. You got to be good at management. And you also have to be good at leadership. And uh, I, you know, I learned that the hard way in my first business, I was a terrible leader for many, many years. And I kind of learned the, the 80, 20 of, how to be a decent leader, how to be a, the kind of guy I would want to work for and, and how to lead through example and, and how to inspire people to, to, to buy into what the little business's vision was. And so I was able to carry some of that stuff through to, to the second company, uh, some of the fundamentals. But to your point, it's very different leading and managing engineers than it is, than it is uh, laborers in, in, a tra in a traditional business. And so some things were similar, some things were different. And it's also different, like when you come into work, and this is a great feeling when, if you ever get to experience it, you come into work and everybody is smarter than you. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. It's like, how do I, how do I like lead this organization of people? Like, I don't know yeah. how to do what they're doing. And I, and I couldn't have ever learn it if I tried. And so it's, it's different. You have to just rally everybody about why are we getting out of bed and why does it matter? And why are we here? And do we really all believe in the same things? Do we really all believe in the same vision? And are we going to work together to get there? And here's how I see the world a little differently. And I think if we really work our butts off for the next three, four years, we can get there. And if you can get people to buy into that, then that kind of closes maybe the skills gap between you and, and, yeah. and, and what they're doing. And, and just because you, you don't necessarily know how to uh, code, it doesn't mean you can't lead coders. And that's something right. I've had to learn through trial and error over the last eight years. 
So you raise a really interesting question, Brian. You said when you got into this new business, you basically became a do-it-yourselfer. You were learning how to write code. You were learning that. I'm going to guess you don't do that today. I'm going to guess that you're not writing that today, but you did it in the beginning. And so many entrepreneurs struggle with that question. What do I actually have to do so I really understand it? What do I do because I can't afford, or I believe I can't afford to hire someone? I'm not just bootstrapping the money, I'm bootstrapping the work, um, or I feel like I got to control it. So talk about that journey of the guy that's coming and doing it all to build a company where you're not doing all of that today, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a really good question because it, it doesn't get talked about a lot and it needs to be talked about. So, so the first thing I would say is uh, read the book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, and go just do everything that book says. You might say, you might say well, yeah, you, yeah, I thought you were running like this big tech company. Why, why do I need to be, write, read the E-Myth? Uh, that's a book about a lady running a bakery. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that book really goes over the nuts and bolts of how do you build a business and an organization yeah. and actually build a business and not be self-employed. And that's something that we all kind of don't know until it's too late. And you, you've spent five years, you don't have a business. You, you're really right. just self-employed. So you can just read that book and do everything that book says. And the first thing, one of the things the book talks about is going through the, the exercise of creating an org chart for your business day one. And so for me, starting GreenPal, there would have been uh, head of engineering, head of sales, head of marketing, head of product design, head of customer feedback, um, head of uh, vendor acquisition, head of homeowner acquisition, head, you know, all of these different things like who, like, and then, and then down below them, there would be four or five other people like mm -hmm. this front end engineer, back end engineer, who's going to test the product, like do all these things. And it literally it's my name on most of this stuff. And my co founder, <laughs> and it's like, it's your name on all of these things. And it's like, well, that sounds like a waste of time. Why would I even do that? If I'm going to put my name on all this, if I got to do it all anyway, well, as time goes on, you can peel your name off these things slowly, but you still got to do them in the early days because it's almost impossible to delegate anything if you haven't done like the 80-20 of it yourself. How did it feel when you started peeling your name off? Really good, but it didn't happen. It didn't, it didn't happen until like year three. It was very much me and my two co-founders doing everything. So we're working yeah. in the business yeah. And we're trying to, to peel away time to work on the business. Mm -hmm. And so 90% of the time, to your point, was just doing the stuff we had to do to get to the next level of the game. And as time goes on, you can peel your name off through and, and, and delegate it to a freelancer, a, a part-time employee, a full-time employee, a contractor to help you with this stuff. And because you've done it yourself, because you've done the bookkeeping, you've done the design, you've done a little bit of the engineering, you understand enough of it to where you can delegate it with, with stewardship and understand what the expectations are, understand what a quality uh, uh, freelancer or contractor employee mm -hmm. might look like. Whereas if you skip that step and don't do it yourself for a little bit, then you then you just kind of either going to like be wrong or be lucky. And yeah. uh, and like hope is a, is a terrible strategy for running a business. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, the, it, going through that experience of doing this stuff yourself, for a year, two, three years, and then you can start to begin to peel your name off some of these roles is, is, is what's worked for me in the second business. Gotcha. So what about, let's talk about one specific one. You talked about, you kept using the term 80-20, doing it 80% of it at least to really understand. Let's talk about sales. Uh, I think in a lot of businesses, that is, someone comes in, they're not good at sales. 
so to speak, or they don't believe they are. And their first thought is, I just need someone else to sell this. I don't think that works very often. I think they, they're, the, they're the one that have the vision. They know what it is. I believe that person has to learn how to sell it before they get someone else to sell it. Has that been your experience or not? And what have you learned about the importance of learning the sales part of your business? It's a great question. And, and I think at every, every small business or every large business, there's a sales engine. There's, a, there's an engine of growth at the core of the business. And so in my current world that I live in, I see this a lot where I see, I see new startups will want to start a new product and they'll spend like all this time developing the product and then want to sprinkle a little bit of marketing on at the end. And <laughs> that doesn't work. Like the marketing no, growth. There's no such thing as fairy dust in marketing? Yeah, you sprinkle a little bit or you just, you, you just hire somebody off of uh, Fiverr to, to, to do the marketing for you. And, and it, like, it just doesn't work. Like the, right. the marketing, the sales, the distribution, whatever you want to call it needs to be baked into the DNA of the product of the business from the ground up. And, and so the way we market green pal is very different than the way I did sales at my first company. So hmm. green pal is very much a, an organic, uh, type of marketing channel. We, we focus on organic search, we focus on ranking for certain keywords when people are looking for our services. Now that's sales, but it's very different than what sales was in very a traditional different. sense yeah. when I was running my first business, which was just as important. When I got to 500K, a million in revenue running my first landscaping company, I then began to understand that, okay, not only do we got to be awesome at, at delivering consistent results for our customers in terms of, of landscaping maintenance, but now I need to, to carve out time during the week to run a sales process. And I, I started stumbling into what does that even mean? And, and to your point, I didn't want to do any of it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to cold call a hundred people a day. I didn't want to go door to door. I didn't want to, I didn't want to like make cold calls and sit in the lobby and, and hope that the person that I needed to talk to would talk to me. And I hated it, but I forced myself to do it because I knew I needed to learn how to do it mm -hmm. first before I could hire somebody else to do it. Yeah. And, and so going through that exercise of, of doing it myself for many, many years for, for three years, really just doing all the sales myself. So so uh, going back to the Mario example, being, being half good at a lot of different things, one of the hats I would wear is operations. You know, the other hat I would, I would wear is sales. And I, and I would kind of try to split my day up between yeah. those two roles. Hmm. And, and uh, doing it myself, then I was able to hire my first salesperson. I made the wrong hire, but I was least able to understand I made the wrong hire. And then yeah. I, I started to really codify what our sales process looked like and started to hone it over many years mm -hmm. to where we, we just had the best sales process in our, in our little market and we beat the pants off our competition. Wow. Now, when you were talking about the differences between the, the physical, the brick and mortar type business like you first had and the, the tech side, there, there are now a lot of tech, I'll, I'll say incubators. You also have basically the ecosystem around the technology. Like there's a big one here in Raleigh. I think they're you know, in, in, in several other areas. Do you have access to that where you are in Tennessee? In the early days, that was the first thing we thought we had to do. You know, we, you know, when I was starting GreenPod, I didn't know the first thing about how to start a tech business. Yeah. I, I didn't know how to code. I didn't know how to digitally market a product. I didn't even know how to invent a product. So, the, so I thought, well, I just need to like attend every uh, meetup event. I need to attend every networking event. I need to, I just need to like try to find people who have done this. And I spent a year doing that in, in Nashville, Tennessee, 
And what I came to realize is like, this is a big waste of time because nobody here has built a consumer facing uh, product and built it to any sort of traction or scale. And, and so um, one of my favorite quotes is Mark Cuban. He says, never take advice from somebody who isn't doing or hasn't already done what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. So if I wanted to start like a real estate company or maybe even like a healthcare type of related company, Nashville's a great place to get mentors, but there just yeah. weren't any then and, and not a whole lot even now in my town. Right. What I, what I started uh, really figuring out what worked for me was going to YouTube University. <laughs> really, really yeah. just like going down the rabbit hole on the long tail on who are the people in like Silicon Valley and, and Austin and New York and Boston who have built these types of products and who are talking about it and yeah. who are giving speeches at, at conferences and, and who, are, who are doing little fireside chats and talking about what worked for them. And I just, and, and, and I started just like watching six or seven hours a day of anything I could get my hands on and really learning my, the, the craft that way, hmm. along with taking online classes and reading every blog post I, I, could, I could find that would help me learn how to code, learn how to design a product, learn how to build out a marketplace. And so I, I, I have like a thousand mentors. I've just never met any of them, right? Uh, and they don't know who I am uh, yet. And so it's like, that's what's worked for me. It's like finding a diet of information that's out there on YouTube and on the internet and really kind of spending the time to wait, wait, you know, wade through what's not so helpful and finding the stuff that is helpful and just and listening and learning and then putting it to work in your business. Jeff, I think he's the poster child for what we say. You can't grow a business bigger than you. So right. <laughs> you got to be growing yourself. Right. Yeah. That's right. So, Brian, I'm really curious about something. You talked about you hired your first salesperson and it was a bad hire. And you also referenced earlier how important it is to fail and learn and move forward. What specifically did you learn about that bad hire? Yeah. Woo. Uh, you're you're going to trigger me. Uh, there PTSD. we go. I got PTSD on this one. Uh, you know, I mean, we, you got to go through it to learn what, what works and what doesn't. So for me, uh, I, the mistake I made like two or three times in a row was I overemphasized and I just thought my industry was so complex and so mysterious that I had to hire a salesperson from within the industry. So I did that like really wrong and then I did it wrong again. And, and what I learned was, is, is that you hire, first off, I learned you can't motivate demotivated people. Don't, don't try <laughs> right. to do that. And yeah. so what I would, I would over, over to the index on, I was like, this guy is a sales guy or sales gal for, for my competitor. And it's seemingly from the outside in, they're crushing it. I'm going to go try to poach them and bring them over here. And, and I quickly learned that, no, they, they were just dead weight over there. And they that weight over here. And yeah, they might have had known some people in the marketplace and known some people in the industry, but really and truly, like uh, I, w- I would have been better off like hiring somebody who was super motivated and giving them a process, a proven process yeah. uh, that they can that they can execute. The other thing I learned is that is that once you figure that out, once you figure out that you don't necessarily have to hire somebody who knows the industry inside and out, you can hire somebody who's just a who who just has an ambition, has a chip on their shoulder and wants mm-hmm. to do something more in life and that your little business could be the vehicle for that. That's what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Then you got to lay out a, a, a process that you have proven you've done yourself that they can work. And, and when they're working that process, you're, you're not managing the outputs, you're managing the inputs. And so it's like, okay, well, well I hired a salesperson. 
the output should be, I want an extra 100K in recurring revenue this month. Where is it? And you're trying to manage the output. What you need to do is manage the inputs. How many people did we reach out today? How many appointments did we set up? How many appointments did we go on? How many appointments did we, did we close? How many people didn't sign the contract? Like literally managing every step of the inputs into the process, that's how you drive results and that's how you keep people accountable and, that, and that's how you develop good sales talent from the ground up. And, and, and that's what, something that took me like six years to figure out by doing it every wrong way I could. You know, back then there wasn't a whole lot of stuff like this. There wasn't YouTube University. Yeah. There wasn't podcasts very, that were very popular. This was like 2005, six, seven, eight. And so I'm having to learn this stuff the hard way just by reading books and trying to figure it out. Well, it's interesting you say that because sticking with this uh, topic, I think a lot of companies still have not figured that out because they tend to focus on, because it's easier, they focus on the outputs. Another way I'd say that is those are the trailing indicators yep. rather than the inputs, which are the leading indicators. And if you go to most organizations and say, what are your goals for your salespeople? They're going to tell you their output goals. Well, no, what, what about the behaviors? What are the goals around the behaviors that you believe will lead to those outputs? Well, yeah, I, don't, all they, I need them to just hit their number. Yeah, they just need to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, hit a number. What does that even mean? Yeah, no, we don't, we don't support them. They have to support themselves. Right, right. And, and then you are looking for that unicorn. And yeah. unicorns do exist, but it's, it's like, that's not, a, that's not a way to build a business. And, right. and you know, one of my favorite quotes is, is, is from, this is going to sound terrible. One of my favorite quotes from Ray, Ray Kroc, the dude who built McDonald's, he said, I want, a, I want an organization that can run on mediocre people. And, and you know, not that we have to take it to that, that extreme, but you do have to McDonaldize your business in terms yeah. of what are the processes, what are the inputs that, that, that get us to our output. And, and people want that. People want that guidance. People want that. That's that sort of system that they can they, that they can be led through, not hey hit a number and if mm -hmm. and if you don't do it heads will roll. Like nobody right. wants to to work in a place like that. So you've gone through some inflection points in your business. You know, from the startup side, you you had to get to the point where now you have product market fit. Maybe share what that looks like for some of our listeners because that that's kind of a magical point. I find a lot of people that that come to me for marketing services, they don't necessarily know exactly who their customer is. And without that, how do you actually figure out how you, how you're going to promote to them? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a common mistake I see a lot too. I read an article somewhere that said something like 70% of all venture capital goes right back to three pockets. Google, Facebook, and Amazon. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like literally, like these companies will raise five, ten million dollars and just spend it all on on paid paid ads. And you know, you, yeah, you got to buy distribution, but you really got to figure out: Do I have a product that 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 people like using, that they keep using, that's delivering value for them? And one of the best indicators of it is retention. It's if I got just a hundred people to try out my product, was I at least able to keep thirty of them? And if I wasn't, why not? And it's particularly in those early days is, is talking to as many of those hundred people that you can, yes. making, it, making it completely frictionless for them to speak to you as the founder. And I mean, cell phone number on the email signature. I mean, live chat and ev on every screen. Uh, they need to be able to talk to you seven days a week, those first hundred, maybe even first thousand, 
because that's the only way you know if you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. And they're going to tell you, they're going to kind of help guide you a little bit. Yeah, you don't want to listen to all the feedback and you don't want to like just be, be, be like chasing a different, a bunch of different problems, but you need to like listen to that, internalize it and let that guide you in terms mm-hmm. of, am I on the right track? Am I not? Am I building something that nobody wants or do they want it? And I'm just letting them down. That's one thing that we found with GreenPal is, is that, you know, the first 100, 300 people that tried it, they were like let down because the app didn't work. It was a piece of crap. Uh, the guy wouldn't show up. The prices were too high. The service quality hmm. sucked. You name it, million problems. And we would meet with these people and they would tell us where we suck. But there was one thing that we never heard. I don't need this. We never wow. heard that. Hmm. And so hearing that like uh, gave us the, the, like the, the validation to keep moving forward. Keep the, just to, if we knew if we get a hundred, we get a thousand. If we get a thousand, we get ten thousand. We get ten thousand, we get a hundred thousand. And just and so just like working your way through the journey, almost like a video game, like one level at a time, and not getting too far out ahead of your skis, and not even worrying about level eight, nine, and ten. Let's just get through level two or three. And a lot of that is get a handful of customers, talk to them, improve, and then get more customers, make more money, rinse and repeat. You do that long enough, you can build something from scratch. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last 20 years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. Welcome back. Let me hit you with another employee or team member question. before we get back into some other topics. You talked about making mistakes. And recently I did a video talking about the difference between looking to hire the best person and and hiring the right person. Hmm. Uh, I'm not going to give you my opinion on it, but when you hear that right versus best, how does that land for you? And how has that shown up in your team building of your organization? Yeah, like all things, I think it, it depends on what kind of business you're running. My first business, landscaping company, 150 employees, four salespeople, uh, head of operations, like 20 crew leaders. And so if you're looking for like a laborer like that you're going to build from the ground up, there's certain things that you're, that, that you're looking for that, that fit the culture of the business. But the reality is, particularly in this labor market, you need bodies. Like you can't be choosy about like, uh, like, is this the best cultural fit for this frontline worker? You, you, you really need bodies and they, they have to hit a, a minimum threshold. And then you need to work on the system and the process that, that brings them up to speed in terms of what the expectations are, what the standards are, what the, what the culture is for your business and kind of train them along the way and develop the talent from the ground up that way. That's the way I would approach it in, in that type of traditional style of business and really kind of keeping your head the difference between McDonald's and Chick-fil-A, the difference between Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks. Like, 
what kind of culture do you want in your business? And, and you as the founder, how are you going to get that, that Chick-fil-A level of service and not the McDonald's level of service? So that's how I approach that. On the other end of the spectrum, in a knowledge-based type of role, in a, in a, in a uh, very technical kind of role, one thing I have found that has worked for me, particularly in my current business, as we've grown it from just me and my two co-founders and now 27 people, is that as you're, as you're in these kind of growth stages, I have found it's, m- it's much better to go to the very top, hire the absolute best that you can for however many hours a month you can afford them. So you want to hire fractionally the best CTO head of engineering that you can. And even if you can only afford them for one hour a week, they will guide and help you set the, the strategy and do the right things to, to execute on a higher level. You're much better doing that than hiring somebody who doesn't really know what the hell they're doing for 40 hours a week and, and they're spinning your wheels. And so on, on the one hand, in certain kind of business, you just need bodies. You need to develop a system to, to get them up to snuff. On the other hand, in certain types of roles, like chief of legal, chief of, of, of a CTO, product design, uh, a CMO, hire the person that makes $300 an hour and let them work for you for one hour a week. That will, that will raise the bar in terms of execution of, what, of how you're doing in your business. Are you seeing much of that today? I mean, you're seeing it in your business, but what you just described is, I think, more the new model than it was even 10 years ago. Uh, most organizations that I see even today, they're saying, we need this, but we can't quite afford that person. So we're going to hire someone less qualified because it's all about this old mindset of a full-time person. I think fractalization is really the new economy. What are you seeing beyond your business in the business world? Precisely. That is exactly my point is that in my old business, I went through that because you're to your point, five, 10 years ago, this wasn't even a conversation. Now it is because we have platforms and technology that can help you fractionally work with the best talent you can. You know, one thing that plagued me running my first company is here we got 150 people. We're doing 10 some odd million dollars a year. We really need a full-time HR person. I mean, we really need one badly, but we couldn't afford it. Like, like a full-time HR person, a good one would have been, you know, 70, 80, 90 grand, 150 grand, depending on how, how talented you go. And what I should have done, it really wasn't possible back then, but if I, if I was facing the problem today, I, I should have hired like a rock star HR person for five hours a week just to look over what we're doing, look over our processes, look over like our procedures, make sure that we're not screwing things up, make sure we're not exposed to any sort of weird labor laws we don't know about, all of this stuff. And, and that would have made my life a lot easier had I done that. But, but instead, like, well, can't afford it, so I just got to do the best I can. And as it turns out, like I'm not really a, that great of an HR person. I made some mistakes and it cost us. Um, and, and so to these days, you don't need to have this big void and the same could be said for marketing. It's like, well, I'm doing a million dollars a year and it's everything I can do just to keep the lights on. And I don't have any time for marketing. Well, okay, but let's hire like a rockstar marketer, a rockstar CMO for five hours a week. And then they can give you a list of things that you need to execute on, on a Saturday or Sunday. Let's do that for three years. Then that's how you get to 3 million, 5 million. You just, I love that you've uh, transitioned with that last comment about three to five years. So many people today still believe that 
they everything's possible unicorn wise but they still believe that there are all these businesses that are overnight successes <laughs> and you know you built your first business over time and how i'm like how many years did you own it before you exited that business it's 15 years on the first one 15 years yeah and, I'm and this one you're on the second one yeah you said it took four or five years it really wasn't working <laughs> so talk about that that mindset of playing the long game when you're yeah, creating it's something. 99% of the time, it's never an overnight success, what you think it is. So a lot of times you, you know, you look at this company that might be seemingly crushing it. However, you want to define that. Maybe they raised a bunch of money or maybe they just like went public. Um, and you see like nine figures, 10 figures, and you're like, damn, that was an overnight success. They just started that two or three years ago. And any, but, but this is one of the things I had to learn is that you really start to really look and learn from that founder. And you see that they had like four or five failures before that. They, they started this thing and it went for two or three years, went to zero. Then they started this thing and they raised $10 million and it went to zero. They crashed $10 million into the ground and still like got back up and tried again on this third thing. So you're looking at like, you're not looking at three years. You're usually looking at 10 or 15 or even 20. And, and so that's the thing that oftentimes doesn't get looked at. It doesn't get understood is that there are no overnight successes. It's like everybody that seemingly does one uh, has, is, is rolling in 10 or 15 years of experience into the one that worked, or they just, they've been at it for 10 years or 15 years. You just didn't know. Like Airbnb just went public. You know, those guys started in 2007 and almost died like seven times um, running that business. And the other thing you don't hear about is, is the co-founder, the technical co-founder uh, of the Airbnb team was one of the preeminent spammers in the world at the time. So it's like the first year for them to get the traction they needed was basically Nate spamming everybody. <laughs> and, and so you don't hear that story. Like that's like, that's tucked into like a corner of a book that, that, that I stumbled upon that talks about the founding story of Airbnb. So it's like, this Nate dude was like literally a spammer, one of the best in the world, mind you, for, for almost a decade before they started Airbnb. So it's like, it was Airbnb an overnight success. Not really. It's like a 20 year old thing in the making. And so it's just it, everything like that's big starts really small. It takes a long time to get these things going. And a lot of the grind and the slog comes down to expectations. And your expectations are that you should be able to do it in a year or two or three when in fact it's going, going to be five or 10. And I see this a lot, you know, like I do some coaching and mentoring for entrepreneurs in Nashville where I live as, as a hobby. And I see like, oh, I can't start this business because I need $10 million to start it and I have no access to capital. <laughs> Therefore, I'm out of business. I can't do it. Well, maybe we, hold on, maybe we start a lawn mowing business or a house cleaning business, or maybe we start a roofing company, or maybe we start some kind of business we can start Let's get, let's put up some points on the board, maybe a couple hundred grand in the bank in five years, then you're teed up to start that big one. Yeah. That's such a good point. The, the long-term and, and as you were talking about that, it made me realize, I, I never thought about it this way, but I guess serial entrepreneurs, there's some bravery in there that you're, you're picking yourself up. You're getting back in there. You're ready to go in for the challenge. You know, I've always looked at it as, Hey, it's just fun. You know, I, I like to, create new ideas and see them come to fruition. But <laughs> yeah, you're taking your, your lumps along the way too. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's a full contact sport, but I think it's one of the best things you can do with your life. Yeah. 
Um, one of the beautiful things about entrepreneurship and business ownership, it doesn't care who you are. The marketplace, <laughs> right. the marketplace doesn't care if you're man, woman, trans, doesn't care what color your skin is. Yeah. So like if you if you're marginalized by like the last hundred years of society, like this is the path to to raise your social economic standing in our country. It's, and everybody has access to it because everybody can get started at some level and work their way up. And that's one of the beautiful things I love about it. Uh, I think if you look at your life in the context of like a movie almost, and like the hero of the story is going through these ups and downs and, and they conquer all these challenges to get to the end. And uh, if you think about your life in the context of a movie and the business can be the storyline that makes your life interesting, then that takes care of a lot of these like slog related things and, and moments yeah. in time where you want to give up. It's like, it's not happening to you. It's happening for you. And this <laughs> is the thing that's making your life interesting. Yes. And it challenges you and it helps you to grow. Absolutely, man. Like, it, like if you're doing business right, every three to five years, you should completely evolve as a different person. New, <laughs> new skills, new leadership talents, yeah. uh, things, technical things you didn't know how to do three, four, five years ago. You're more humble because, you know, it, it doesn't matter what business you're in. It's very humbling um, yeah. in terms of, like, it doesn't matter how much you grow, that you're, you're exposed to so many things that, that are harder than you ever would have ever imagined. So it's humbling in that way. And that's one of the things I love about it. Let's talk about a phrase you just used, Brian, and it's one that I think gets confused often, in, in my opinion, entrepreneurship versus business ownership. I know some business owners that I don't consider entrepreneurs, and I have some, some entrepreneurs. So there's a difference. Do you see a difference? Which category do you feel like you're in, and what are those key differences? I do. I do. And it's almost like um, there's a, there's a, there's the paradigm of entrepreneurship and, and business ownership. And there's the paradigm and then maybe even down like the, the spectrum of self-employed versus business ownership. Yeah. And these things all get conflated. And mm -hmm. uh, the reality, you know, 20 years of, of being in business, two companies to eight figures, one sale under my belt, two different types of worlds. The way I see it is my first business landscaping company profitable, making good money, a hundred some odd employees, great culture, a lot of fun to run that business. That was a business. I was a business owner. Was I an entrepreneur? Not really. Um, I was more or less a business owner. Second company, Green Pal, the Uber for lawn mowing does not exist. I can't just push a button on my phone and summon a grass cutting service yet. That is a vision of the future that does not yet exist that I as the entrepreneur want to bring to life. That's what an entrepreneur does. An mm -hmm. entrepreneur sees something in the future that doesn't yet happen or exist, and they do all the things. They raise the capital if they need to. They put the team together. They do the hard work. They talk to customers. They do all the things they got to do to bring that vision of the future to life. And that's what an entrepreneur does. Do entrepreneurs become business owners? Certainly, as they, as they become profitable and they scale, but I think the entrepreneur is like what they call zero to one. Zero is just zero, nothing. You don't have anything. One is like, an, like a whole integer and it is something. And like an, a business owner goes from like one to two or 1 1.2 to 1.5, whereas an entrepreneur goes from zero to one. So let's talk about that a little deeper because I think that's, that's you know, an observation, but how does it impact people? 
you mentioned at the very beginning, you said there's three phases of a business. There's startup, grow up, and scale up. First of all, what's the difference to you? But more importantly, where is your real strength in those three? Yeah, it's a great Versus question because, because, you know, this is not about being Mario now. Yeah, you got Where's it. You, your can't be Mar- you can't be Mario in scale up territory. You have to evolve yeah. and you got to you got to go. You got to have to you have to develop a superpower, really. And uh, so startup, <laughs> grow up and scale up. Startup is I have an idea for a product that does not yet exist, that solves a new problem in some unique way. And I think people will patronize this app that I'm building or or will use this new physical product that I have invented. And that, and that's like startup is going from nothing exists to people are using it and continuing to use it and patronize it. That's startup. Grow up is, okay, I've done that. Now I'm making a, a 250K or a million a year in revenue. And, and now I need to hire these key people. Um, you know, I might need to hire like a full-time product person or a full like, search engine optimization lead or a full-time influence marketer or, you know, whatever these roles are, grow up is in, in startup land. It's more or less you the co-founders and maybe some helpers and grow up land. It's like, okay, I'm five people. And now it's not all about headcount, but now maybe I need to be to 15 or 20. And so grow up land is like, okay, now I've got a, I've got the semblance of a business. We may or may not be profitable, but revenue is predictable. We have a sales engine at our core and we've got a pretty good team. Uh, that's working on this thing. Customers are sticking around. We're no longer trying to figure out how to keep customers, and we're doing that for a while. And 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 now, now I'm ready for scale up. It's like, okay, I know I now have a money printing machine. I know a, like a hundred grand comes in and a million dollars comes out the other side uh, in in a predictable amount of time. And that's like where you see a lot of companies like seemingly achieve this overnight success is like they, you don't see the first two phases very much. You see the third phase and they, and now they're raising on a nine figure round of funding or they go public for a billion dollars or what have you. And so that scale up phase is a lot of time. The only phase we see in the public eye, we don't see the first two phases because quite frankly, it's boring. Uh, unless you're in this stuff, you don't want to, you don't care about the new startup that just started with two employees in a garage somewhere. You only hear about them until they, until they, they achieve that massive success. It's interesting. I'm, I'm reading digital gold, which is all about Bitcoin and, and how that got up to coming. And that took a long time for Bitcoin long to be adopted. Time. Yep. Long time. And, and, uh, it almost died a couple of times and, and, Many and, times. and, and we don't realize it. Like if it wasn't for, uh, Silk Road. You know, yeah. which was basically a like the eBay of 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 meth of drugs. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, without Silk Road, there's no Bitcoin. Yeah, and I mean, Bitcoin would not exist today had Silk Road not used it as its currency for a period of time. That's what got it over the hump. So, yeah, like studying these things that seemingly come out of nowhere and understanding really how they organically happened and how the founders maybe like breathe bread life into them can help you as a founder kind of set context for where you're at in your journey. So I want to touch on the other, that question again, Brian, about when you look at yourself today, you've evolved. You said you evolve every two or three, four years. Would you say today you're the startup guy, the grow up guy or the scale up guy? If what's your superpower in those three today? Yeah, that's, that's uh that is something that I love about business is that 
it causes you to level up. <laughs> it causes you. It, it forces you. Like if it, if not, you're not going to stick around long. You're not going to make it. And so yeah. for me, you know, eight years ago, I was a startup guy. You know, beating on doors. Hey, I saw you downloaded the, our app, and, and and I'm sorry it didn't work out. But would you mind, like, if I bought you a cup of coffee so I can talk to you for 20 minutes, just so I can figure out uh, where we let you down? And and doing that a hundred times. That's startup guy. And then. And then, you know, I was and over the over about five or six years, I was able to grow up to become, uh, uh, you know, company building guy, you know, in terms of like the, the middle part of the spectrum. And that's kind of where I've been the last four or five years. And we're just now on the point of, of scale up guy, which I'm not today as we sit here, you know, I've never ran a hundred million dollar business. These are not talents or, or, or like scar tissue that I have built up. Am I ready for the challenge? Certainly. Um, and, and am I willing to do the things I got to do to learn it? Certainly. But that's what I love about business is that it's almost like it causes you to go through this like repeat process of block and tackling. It's like the, the, the problems you're facing at that moment in the business journey, they are what causes you to go out and read the books to hit the, hit the people up that may have done it and like try to learn from them to seek out uh, uh, conferences where, where these types of people are giving talks and learn from them. Um, and so like constantly like this, like auditing what stage of the journey you're at and like, what is the thing you need at that moment going out and like, and getting the books to, uh, for that moment. Like there was like in startup land, there was a moment in time when, when, when like we realized that good copywriting drove sales and I read every book I could get my hands on on copywriting for like six months. That was what I needed. And then, and then in like the buildup phase, like I, I, you know, I had to learn how to like, all over again, how to, how to conduct interviews uh, well and how to look for talent and how to, how to find undiscovered talent and how to, how to like, how to prune people out of the organization the right way. And so I had to read all the books I get my hands on about that stuff. At a certain point in time, I'm going to have to learn about things like, like how do you hire leaders that hire leaders and how do you create communication lines up and down the org? If you've got 300 people, you know, at a certain point in time, I may have to learn that stuff it's not where I'm at in the video game right now. So there's no reason to even bother with it. You know, right now, like right now I need more homeowners to use my app. I, I, I have a few hundred thousand, I need 3 million. And so the things I need today are, okay, what does our SEO team look like? How are they doing? And what are the, what is the help they need? Well, you know what? We need an engineer that can help this SEO team do, 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 do things a certain way. That's the person I need to go find. Let me find the resources to help me find that person. And that's the cool thing about, about, you know, building a business from scratch. It causes you to, to constantly be learning new things and seeking out new, new, new resources. That's so good. Now, one of the things that you had talked about earlier is how you, how you had to build your business, but your business in particular is a two-sided market. You have one side is the, the, the service companies. The other side is the homeowners, the people who need the service. And you have to bridge those two together. So where did you start? Did you get the network of service providers or did you get the homeowners? How did you attract both of those? Yeah, it's like you, you, one thing that you constantly, I see a lot is like, oh, an app, just build the app and it'll just happen. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, an app should really, you know, I need a massage and an app should exist, you know, where I could summon a masseuse. And, and if I just build the app, it'll just happen. And like, man, that is... <laughs> If you build it, they will not come. Right. And so you have to, you have to, you have to like hack the supply and demand in the early days and, and, and get that critical, critical uh, 
mass and get the overlaps between suppliers and, and consumers to only then begin to learn about what you need to be doing and building. So um, I've heard it put a couple different ways. It's like, is it the chicken or the egg? Well, you fake the chicken. And, uh, and so that's one way to do it. You can like fake one side of it. And usually that's the supply side. For us, what worked for us was in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live, I had built pretty much the biggest landscaping company in town and uh. sold it. And so if you were in the lawn mowing business in Nashville, you knew who I was. And so I was able to get the first 500 service providers just by uh. calling them all on the phone and saying, hey, you know, yeah, yeah, I sold that thing. Yeah, no, it's great. But I've got this new thing now, and I want you to try it out. And, uh, you know, would you use it for a year? And I'll give you free coaching along the way wow. on how to grow your lawn mowing business. Yeah, sure. And so that's how we were able to kind of get enough suppliers onto the platform in the very, very early days to where then we could focus all of the team's intensity on the other side of the transaction. Mm -hmm. How do we get consumers onto the platform? and match them up with these suppliers. Eventually, we, we had to learn how to attract suppliers uh, mm -hmm. organically, but that at least bought us time to where we could focus on one side of the equation. Interesting. So once you got it going there in Nashville, have you expanded geographically? Yeah, absolutely. You know, four years we spent just in Nashville trying to make it predictable, consistent, yeah. uh, economical, uh, at a certain quality level. And, and once we figured out how to do that consistently, thousands of transactions going on. We then launched our second market and then we did that for about a year. And then we did, then we did our third market. And then we, once we developed a little playbook around, okay, this is how we go to a new city and kind of build it from the ground yeah. up. We then started moving a lot quicker and now we're awesome. in every major city in the country. Wow. I want to go back to a challenge. I suspect you have Brian <laughs> and see how you've navigated. If in fact it's true. The, I'm a movie guy like Craig and the movie that jumped in my head was wizard of Oz <laughs> and, and it was the wizard of Oz where they're running across the field, the poppy field. I think the scarecrow was up ahead yelling, you know, come on, come on. And I can imagine that that happens in, within your business that you are, you are seeing things others can't see. You're running at a pace they're not running. So is that, has that happened for you and how have you addressed that? So you're not just constantly waving for people to catch up with you, to get them along with you versus just trying to keep up with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because as a, as an entrepreneur, you, you do see things a certain way differently than, than maybe even people on your team. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's, and then, then you kind of like, you're full of doubt too. It's like, well, am I just crazy or, you know, or, or can this work? And for me, like the thing that's always, the thing that's always like gotten me out of those ruts where like I'm ahead of my team and they're lagging. It's, it's, it's always gone back from like, there's leadership, like let's take the hill. Like let's, let's like not go, let's go. And there's inspiration, but then you also have to be, become a decent manager. And I, at times, you know, founding, two businesses and I had co-founders in both, I almost had to, I, you know, in a way manage uh, expectations for, for the people around me and put in place certain like tripwires that we as a team needed to hit. And, and, it's, and it's like, no, you're not my employee, you're my co-founder, but as the leader and also wearing the manager hat, I'm managing expectations that we have to hit if we're going to do this thing. And, and so like coming back to like a practical thing in terms of what are the routines that we're doing on a daily basis 
Um, and in the early days when it was just me and my two co-founders, it was three of us. Every single Monday morning, the three of us would get up on a whiteboard at, at 7 a.m. and we would lay out, we would write on the board the things we were going to work out on work on that week and the, what we wanted to accomplish that week. That way, it was right there on the board and we had accountability between the three of us. And we did that every week for like four years. And that little, you know, that little accountability mechanism kind of solved a lot of the, hey, I'm a little ahead of you guys. You're not, you know, you're not bought in with me. It's like, no, we're, we're, we're like, we're 20 mile marching our way to this. And it's like, we're not charging the hill and like, we're going to, we're not trying to win the game with one move on the chessboard. We're slowly just incrementally getting there. And that, that takes care of a lot of that. At least it's, it's helped me take care of a lot of that. I like that you've set up the self-accountability where they're each of Absolutely. you are writing on your own stuff. Yep. We're all writing it down. It's just the three of us. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and the two, my two co-founders have quit their full-time jobs. And I was terrified. I think they're like a good, healthy dose of paranoia is good in, in, in starting a business because I was paranoid and terrified that these guys had quit their business or quit their jobs for nothing. And I didn't want to see that happen. And so, and so the way, you know, it's very rudimentary and simply just handled that was Monday morning stand up, the three of us, we're going to lay it out, including me. And that helped kept me accountable too, yeah. uh, to stay a little longer if I needed to, to, to do the things we need to do. And again, it goes back to input metrics and not the output metrics. Gotcha. So question we haven't talked about, Brian, as we, as we get here to wrap up time, a lot of entrepreneurs slash business owners know that it's lonely <laughs> and even with co-founders it can feel lonely in what ways have you used outside support on these mm -hmm. journeys whether it be mentors whether it be coaches whether it be masterminds how have you used gone outside yourself to get the support you need to help you grow yourself and your businesses you know, there's a time in every entrepreneur's life or maybe several where it's like, oh man, like, what am I doing? Everything is failing. Nothing is working. And my spouse is about to leave me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like every entrepreneur goes through that. And for me, you know, am, I've read in a book somewhere and is, is that every successful business owner, entrepreneur, CEO has got three things, a coach, um, they've got a therapist and they meditate. And so I don't have a therapist. I do have a coach and I meditate. So I got two out of the three. So that that's helped me through some of those lows. Uh, the other thing is, is particularly, it's just like, it's, it's burned the boats. Like there is no going back. Like I can't go back. And so by default, I'm always going to be working on my best idea. And I guess, luckily I'm not terribly creative. And I've got only a couple of good ideas, and this is one of them. And so I'm going to be working on something. I tried retirement. It didn't work. And so <laughs> I'm always going to be working on something. And so like, might as well work on this. And so the only way to move is forward. And, and again, I think a lot of the slog comes down to expectations. You expect it to be better. You expect it to be faster. You expect it to be easier. And that's what like messes with your head. If you can reframe that and say, okay, it's, I know it's going to be hard and I know it's going to take five years or 10 years to do this. And I know there's going to be parts of the journey that suck, but it's okay. I'm going to get through it and it'll be worth it. And, and if you can just keep telling yourself that, you know, that'll, that'll help you see it through the, the, and the worst thing you can do is quit. And I see this a lot. Uh, 
you know, a f- new founder will get started and they, and if it doesn't take off in a year, they just quit. And then they, the problem is we're, we're seduced by this new nomenclature, the pivot. And they just pivot from one thing to the next. And they've pissed away five or 10 years on 10 things where if they just stuck with one of them, they would have built something. Hmm. That's interesting. A, a mentor, friend, colleague many years ago said to me, he was an advisor to new businesses. And he said, too many people think that the businesses fail because they miscalculated money, but they didn't. They miscalculated time. Right. Now, time costs money for sure, but it was about the time and right. how long is it going to take to get there and what does it take to get there? And, um, you know, high expectation, maybe it's high expectations, low attachment and, and go climb the mountain. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, this is great. And what I love about this is uh, we often have a lot of uh, people here who are advisors, coaches, consultants, and uh, I love when we have the business owners in here who are talking about the walk, the journey, the run, the slog, uh, being in the trenches. Uh, you've lived it. Uh, you've lived it well in the sense of build a business, sold it, said, let's do it again. Uh, so I know you've, you've shared so much wisdom. Uh, grateful for that. We always want to have our guests, uh, give our guests the opportunity to promote anything that's going on for you. So what is that for you or Green Pal? Well, thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, 99% of the reason why I like to do interviews like this is I love sharing my experiences. Maybe somebody, yeah. maybe somebody's able to avoid a mistake I've made. So thanks again for giving me that opportunity. Anybody listening to this doesn't want to cut your own grass. Just download Green Pal in the App Store <laughs> or Play Store. Life's too short to mow your own yard. Uh, anybody wants to reach out to me, I've been hanging out on, on Instagram a lot uh, lately. Brian M. Clayton. You can just hit me up on IG. Awesome. They anticipated that one. So we always wrap up mm-hmm. with a question or two, and we'll just wrap up with this question for you. Let's talk. We haven't done this one in a while. Let's do movies with you. so what is a movie television show it could be a scene a quote a character that speaks to you about leadership oh wow you know love 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 i love uh it speaks to me about leadership would be the 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 show better call saul (laughs) and uh (laughs) i just love i love that show because a lot, a, a, you know, a lot of people might look at that show and say, well, this guy's a shyster and like he's, he's kind of this squirrely individual, but he's really an entrepreneur. And you yeah. look at like the early years of him, like reinventing himself, and just trying to break into the legal world. And, and uh, there's, this, there's this one moment where like he, you think he's going to break out and he's going to lease this big, fancy office. Um, you know, with, with, with this co-founder. And, and I think she pulls out at the last minute and at the time he's answering his, he's answering his calls on a flip phone and he's pretending to be um, a, a secretary. <laughs> and like, and so it's like, he just gets punched in the gut and she pulls out and it's like this really low moment and he sits on his ass and he's, he's got, he's like sit up against the wall and he gets a phone call and his phone rings. He goes, thank you for calling Saul Goodman's law office. Like he doesn't give up. Like in that moment, he still pretends to answer the phone as if he has a secretary, even though he's not even in business anymore. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that is just like perseverance. It's consistency. And only if you have that level of pers- perseverance and consistency, can you make it through those early years and can you develop the consistency you needed to, con- to develop to become a good leader? Like just that moment, like I've, I've had moments like that in 20 years. 
Well, that's the first time Better Call Saul has come up. And I get it. And I get it. Because my reaction was the same. It was, well, okay, this is going to be good, though. But he's all those things. He is yeah. persistent. He's creative. I mean, he even had that flip, they, the burner phone business. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying emulate Saul Goodman. <laughs> don't I am don't saying, emulate his morals. I, yeah, I am saying there's things we can learn from him in terms of his tenacity. Absolutely. Yeah. He is tenacious. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brian, for being here. And thank you for being yet again one of those uh, creators and uh, world changers. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com confident to find out more. See you on the inside. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.